Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 242 for April 1st, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 89. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express, the easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers remotely. Support smarter with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com slash security. And by audible.com. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you need to know about keeping yourself safe online. I hope my wife's listening today. (laughs) (laughs) Episode 242, a question and answer episode with Mr. Steve Gibson or GRC.com. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you again, as always. Starting a little late today because we had a crisis at the Laporte household, Casa Laporta. Jennifer got an email, a, a panicky email from her gardener. Uh, saying he's actually building some uh, raised beds for us. Really nice guy. We met with him, and he sent us a bid via email, and so they're in email contact, and the email came and said, it was kind of puzzling because it was a little ungrammatical and strangely uh, capitalized, and his, 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 uh, it was signed with his last name, not his first name. And uh, uh, it said that he was in England, and he'd been robbed at gunpoint, and he'd lost his passport and all his, his billfold and all his money, and could we please send him... $3,279 to cover his hotel bill so he could come home. Wow, that's a lot of money to ask for. Yes, considering we barely know the guy. But yeah. Jennifer, of course, uh, said to me, well, this is about what we owe him for the raised beds, and so I'm <laughs> going to send him the money. And I said, whoa! <laughs> Have you learned nothing from me? Uh, so I'm going to make her listen to this show from now on. But uh, well, It's funny, too, because I just this morning when I was running through the mailbag and sort of catching myself up on various newsletters talking about security things that have happened, I ran across exactly this report. That is that this is what's going on is that people are, you know, bad guys. When they break into someone's email account, they... They rummage around in their inbox and outbox for any clues about where they're physically located. Then that gives them some context for emailing money requests to people that this person whose account they've broken into knows. So that ex- I mean, so it, I mean, it's exactly what happened to Jennifer. Is is now something that is going on? It's becoming a widespread hack because it's social engineering, and of course, we've talked about that often. So it's using some sort of break-in to get into the account than social engineering in order to trick, you know, innocent bystanders who know the person whose account's been hacked into giving them some money. And, I, and then they make it sound believable right. because by reading the, 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 you know, reading the history of email, they can figure out, you know, who the people are, what's their relationship, where they, you know, like create some context for themselves. So, yeah, so it's, it's very credible. Yeah. Yeah. Although still misspelled. <laughs> and unfortunately, something like Gmail, where they where you get to, you know, by design, 
you get to retain all of the communications that you've had. Well, think about that. Over the years, how much accumulates? And if you were to get into someone's Gmail account, you know, if you spend enough time, you can pretty much assemble a person's life and, and really generate some context for creating believable social hacking. Yeah. I, well, I wasn't sure. I, I you know, I, I was trying to figure it out. His, uh, his uh, email came from his AT&T account. And I thought either he's been hacked or, as you say, his email has been hacked. I think, you know, where the, most of this happens these days. We were just reading about the French hacker who said he hacked Twitter. And he said it's not really a hack. He guessed the secret questions. That seems to be the, the soft underbelly of security right now is there's those secret questions. My, my suggestion is to do what I do, which is lie. So it says, what's the name of your first girlfriend? And I put the name of my first dog in there, something like that, you know, because yeah. especially, if, you know, nowadays, every, you can find out a lot about people just scouring around online. All you need to get those answers, to those secret questions often, and, and they'll give you a new password. Yeah. All right, I did, that's that's my little security <laughs> update. <laughs> Let's get to yours. So it's uh, April first, April Fool's okay. Day. I'm not doing. I'm not pulling any April Fool's let's, Day let's jokes. Let's state that so this is this is straight up security I, now. I hate April Fools because you never know what to believe. Yeah. So uh, th- there's nothing in this show from nope. uh, Sloof Flurpa or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, Dvorak always does the column that uh, quotes a uh, a press agent named Slurpa Loof or something like that. Uh, no, no, nothing. This is anything you hear here is real, right? Just look elsewhere for your April Fool's. <laughs> we do have some great Nonsense. questions and answers. And before we get started, let me just quickly welcome Citrix back to the Yay. show. Yeah, they, they, uh, they, the quarter ended and, uh, and uh, we thought, oh no, we haven't had Citrix ad in a couple of weeks, but a new quarter has begun on, on this uh, first day of April. And yay, Yay, so is, uh, so is Citrix. We love these guys, and especially this product for this show, GoToAssist Express. I've been using GoToAssist since the screensavers days. We actually used it to help people uh, on the TV show. We, we didn't use it a lot, but we had tried it, and it was really cool because it lets you, you know, fix the computer. Now, that was almost eight or nine years ago. Now, since then, they have really, this product has gotten faster, better, just superb. So, of course, it's from Citrix. They're always doing the uh, the R and D to make their stuff better. So here's the deal: you get the great remote access backbone that, that Citrix provides, high speed, 128 bit SSL, 24 seven support, but it's tuned for the IT and support professional. So you get a support call. I could have done this with with, with Jennifer. I probably will do it with the gardener. He doesn't have to have it installed Mac or Windows, by the way. So I don't even have to say, well, oh, you're on Windows. No, anything, any operating system. I just sent him a link. Uh, and he clicks on it, and it installs within 30 seconds. It's very quick go to assist. And now I can fix anything in his computer. I can see what operating system is running. I can see what security software is running, any programs running in the background. I can copy files from my computer to his. So if there's a malware bytes or something I want to copy over or a, or a, uh, a Windows update I want to copy over, easy to do and then run it. And while it's running or a scan is running or an install is running, I can go to another computer, another computer, another computer, up to eight different sessions simultaneously. Unattended access with their approval as well. There's just so many reasons to try it. I want you to try it free for 30 days right now. Go to gotoassist.com slash security. Gotoassist.com slash security. Try it free for 30 days. If you're in the support business, this is a must-have tool for you. Gotoassist.com slash security. We thank them so much for their support of security now. 
Steve Gibson, we have, uh, I'm sure, a few things to talk about in yep, the security news. Yep, there's some news in the security world, and um, uh, I just couldn't stop reading the my in-bag, my mail-bag my, this morning. I just, I kept reading them, and I was like, oh, okay, we got to have that one, and oh, we got, so we ended up with 12. So that's fun. We're back, we're back to a dozen, but some of them are quick, and just notes and comments and things, so, but lots of really good stuff. Um, let's see, uh, people may have noticed by the time they're hearing this, that there was an out-of-cycle patch from Microsoft. We discussed several weeks ago whether there might be, and I was guessing back then, that's like, ah, this is so bad. I don't know if Microsoft can wait until the second Tuesday of April. Mm. Um, and sure enough, they chose not to. This was the iepeers.dll problem, which was a zero-day flaw which affected IE6 and IE7, but not IE8. So it turns out that it was being extremely heavily used on the internet, and Microsoft decided, nah, we, we can't be, we can't responsibly wait until, well, it would be another two weeks from now till April 13th. So they pushed out what is uh, essentially their cumulative update for IE, which covers all from IE 5.1 through IE 8. So they fixed another nine vulnerabilities while they were at it. So um, that happened on the 30th was when that became available. So people will may, may notice their little, auto, you know, Windows update yellow shield in the in the toolbar and think, wait a minute, what the, what's going on? Well, that's the story. So um, I'm glad Microsoft did this. Um, they really had no choice because this thing was this was a a typical what we're seeing now you know so-called drive-by web vulnerability where just getting someone to bring up a web page would allow malicious code to be run in your machine. So once again, that's been fixed. Um, also, when I turned on my Mac, which I do once a week for the show because that's where <laughs> that's where I run Skype. Um, I got news of an update, and it's like, oh, sure enough. Well, the, the fun thing was iTunes was being brought up to version 9.1. For the Specifically, iPad. yes, specifically to sync with my forthcoming iPad, okay. which currently seems to be stuck in Louisville. I was saying to you before we began recording that it left three, or it bounced through a couple cities in China, then... Briefly seemed to be in Louisville for customs clearance, <laughs> then went up to Anchorage, Alaska, sp spent the night there, then came back to Louisville, which is where it currently is. So I remember this happening with my 3GS as well. It's pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and you're tracking yours as well. So, and I, and I was thinking briefly that, oh, maybe if it's nearby, I'll be able to get it sooner. But I guess, no, no. They're, they're like all set up to deliver yeah. on Saturday. In fact, okay. I talked to somebody who's a friend does this, uh, is a kind of a high-end delivery guy for UPS. I can't remember the town. And he has lined up 100 Saturday deliveries um, of something. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think I think it's pretty, you know, this they do this all the time. They, If you look at your tracking, uh, it will say exception or something like that. And uh, uh -huh. held... And then right. it'll be, but you know, it's funny because people get all freaked out thinking, oh no, this is something bad has happened because maybe you saw there was a news story saying a company had sued the, and asked the ITC to hold the iPad back. And that's not what's going on. This is normal. It's yep. it, the Apple says to the UPS folks, hold this for Saturday delivery. Well, and it's good too, that they're not, you know, that, that they're 
ahead of the game in terms of delivery. Because how upset would we be, Leo, if it didn't actually come on Saturday? Yeah, no, if, exactly. If we're like, it's like, wait a minute, we, you know, I would have done store pickup if I didn't think I was really going to get it on Saturday. So you know what's fascinating is this whole dropship from China thing. If you order a cable from Apple, you really mm-hmm. don't even buy it from Apple. A third party del- makes it, delivers it, and ships it, uh, and Apple never even sees it. Uh, yep. And and I think that this is kind of the the very interesting kind of just in time way that we work nowadays. So it's not shipped from Apple. It's not shipped from an Apple store. It's shipped from the factory in Shenzhen, China. Yep, that's exactly where mine originated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, also, OSX got a, a big update. I mean, the the iTunes update was a hundred plus meg. Like I think it was one hundred one megabytes uh, for syncing with the iPad and also to support the new iBooks store. Both of those features. And OS X has now moved to 10.6.3. This was a, a big update. Yes, 436 megs. And as this thing was downloading, I was thinking, where would we all be if if 436 megs no wasn't kidding. just something we could casually do? It's like, oh, fine, yeah, update now. You know, That's I got half now. a gig. It's like a whole new operating system. <laughs> That's <laughs> huge. <laughs> yeah. It is the largest. I'm told now the, the most security patches Apple has ever shipped. In his, I mean, by a, by a, like two of order of two. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they didn't patch little things. They said, "Oh, I just give them a whole new one." Right. Yeah. Easier to do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also did want to know uh, to mention. Speak, speaking of people getting their uh, email accounts hacked, and specifically Google being a typical target, um, as of a couple of days ago, Google has added a new feature to Gmail, which our users and our listeners may want to look out for. If you log into your Gmail box and notice a red bar, sort of a banner running across the top of your inbox, that's a new feature where Google will alert you to what it considers might be suspicious activity on your account. Um, From the Google blog talking about this, they said, now, I'm quoting, now, if it looks like something unusual is going on with your account, will alert you by posting a warning message saying, warning, we believe your account was last accessed from dot, 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 along, well, I'm going to fill that in, along with a geographic region that we can best associate with with the access. Clicking through that banner, and there's like a link as part of it, will we'll deliver a log of your prior logon dates, times, and IP addresses. So, um, and, and apparently, um, further, uh, elsewhere I was reading that essentially their logic is if you log in from one country and then a few hours later log in from another where it's unlikely that you've actually, you know, made the journey in that period of time, they'll say, oh, okay, hold on a second. This, or, and, and maybe, I mean, and I imagine that's a, re- a relatively lax um, uh, period of time you know basically if you appear to be country hopping they'll just say uh you know are you really or you know is this something bad so um so that's a nice feature i'm glad that they've they've added that and i think as a kind of thing i was thinking well you know how many users are going to understand how to you know like what this log means of their prior logons well certainly our listeners will oh yeah and and getting a list of ip addresses would be very cool so I think that'll be a nice feature. It, and, and you can log that other machine out, which I think is really is nice. Uh-huh. You can say, I don't know who that is, but get them off my... 
Well, and then you're immediately going to want to change your username and password and right, so forth, right. making sure that there's nothing evil in your machine that might be watching you do that. I think this is so great. I mean, this is this is just brilliant. I mean, I'm so yeah, glad they're doing this. It's being proactive, which yeah. I think is, is really good. And there was an interesting study um, by uh, an outfit we've talked about a couple times, an outfit called Beyond Trust. Um, they did a study to look at the sort of to retrospectively look at what admin rights would have done for Windows 7 since it had been created in the past. Um, uh, They determined that of the 190 vulnerabilities published by Microsoft last year in 2009, um, restricting administrator rights for users... So if, if users were like doing what we should, which we all sort of know we should, but it's a pain, so some of us don't, you know, running as a normal rights user and only using admin account rights when you're installing software and so forth, all vulnerabilities in Microsoft Office would have been avoided. Whoa. All vulnerabilities in IE8 would have been avoided. 94% of all vulnerabilities in all other versions of IE (laughs) would have been prevented. It's kind of amazing. I know. And 64% of all other Windows vulnerabilities. So would have been bypassed, would have not been a problem. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, (laughs) I'm thinking, okay, it's it's annoying to do that, but boy, what a benefit. So I would say, especially to people who, for whatever reason, have a history of the, getting themselves infected. Like Jennifer and my mom. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, frankly, you know, you we, we've spoken, you and I, Leo, we're very careful, knock on wood. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I just... It's funny because somebody, in fact, in one of our um, Q&As today, they made a comment. They wanted to give me a link. And they said, Steve, I know how you know, hmm. you're know you reluctant to right. click on links in email. And I said, no, not reluctant. I don't. No force on <laughs> earth could make me click on a link in email. Was, uh, so reluctant doesn't begin to, <laughs> to reluctant. characterize it. It's uncooperative. I just won't. You know, I can be. I can't think of a good reason to ever to do that. So let me, let me ask you this though, because it was my understanding. We've kind of gone back and forth on this. That in the in current versions of OS ten and Windows seven, that even if you're a, an administrative user, you still have to kind of uh, uh, explicitly say, "I want to do this." You, you you don't have to enter the password, but you have to, you still have to say yes. I know what I'm doing here, right? You have to sort of you have you have to do the user account control. So, so you're not really you don't have full administrative privileges just kind of out of the box, which means no 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 virus would either, even if you're logged in as an administrator. That's yeah. what puzzles me. I know in it, older versions of Windows that's true. Yeah, i and I you know I think I'm going to probably follow this down because I'm curious. I mean, I'd like to I'd like to give our listeners a, a solid understanding of what this means because because yeah, you know be, i i had been saying all along be a limited user do not be a full user you'll you'll be safer yes it's a pain you have to 
but then it was my understanding that the new, like starting with Vista, I think, and OS X. Well, right, right. And, and, and remember, because the way Vista worked was when you logged in, you were given a pair of accounts. There was actually a dual login. And so you were running with, with restricted rights normally. Right. And then when you said, when, when you did the UAC it would elevate um, you. elevation, right. it would actually switch over to an admin set of credentials that allowed you to proceed w with that operation. So you're right. I need to, to look more closely at their report and understand why that isn't enough. Because they're, they're saying that isn't enough that you need to actually be a limited user who doesn't ha presumably who doesn't have the option of like installing device drivers and installing stuff but you'd think okay well the, does that mean that this you know the whole UAC dialogue is being ineffective or maybe they're just assuming people click and say yes all the time I'll, I'll, that's I'll, probably i mean yes if you if you escalate of course or elevate yeah. then of course you're going to have a problem and that's probably true that maybe people just go yeah 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 whatever i yeah Let's do it. Well, I did. I did have a uh, an interesting news flash. Uh, in <laughs> not surprisingly, about Spinrite version six, it's been approved for use by the U.S. Army. Congratulations! What does that yes. mean? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, John Galliano looks like. Uh, I think that's how I would say his name. He said, "Steve, thank you for your wonderful product, Spinrite." I've used your product for many years now and I'm such a believer in Spinrite that I recently submitted the product for approval oh, army-wide by IT specialists, which is a group, I guess, within the army because he capitalizes it. He says, it passed a tough evaluation with ease. I look forward to purchasing four copies for my unit's use. So he'd be getting a, a site license by purchasing four copies. He says, thanks to you and Leo Laporte, for your five wonderful years of security now, your netcast is by far, hands down, the best one out there. Congratulations on the award. Yay. So that's very cool. Spinrite formally, uh, and, and he sent me a PDF, <laughs> which I opened very carefully because it was an attachment to email, but I knew where it came from in this case. And it's, it says under factors, it says recommendation, approve, and it said, background, Gibson Research Corporation Spinrite, GRC Spinrite 6.0 is a software program for scanning magnetic data storage devices such as, this is like an official army like document that I'm reading, such as hard disks recovering data and refreshing their surfaces. Spinrite tests the data surfaces of read-write magnetic disks, including IDE, SATA, USB, floppy, zip, and others by analyzing their contents and will refresh magnetic disk surfaces to allow them to operate more reliably. Spinrite attempts to recover data from hard disks with damaged portions that may not be readable via the operating system or other utilities. And then under facts, that was background. Under facts, it says Spinrite will be utilized on machines. Now, I don't know really what this means, but it says not connected to the land war net <laughs> to aid in the troubleshooting repair of hard drives, and recovery of data from failed hard drives. Wow. For machines connected to the land war net, Spinrite will be utilized in a preventative maintenance mode only. So, of course, that's good because you could run Spinrite on those drives to keep them from failing, which Spinrite really does a good job at. Um, and then whatever the land war net is, I guess they take the machine off of that if they want to run Spinrite in a 
in a post-failure data recovery, bring the drive back to life mode. So anyway, that's very cool. We're going to take a little break. Then we have 12 questions. Some great stuff, too, in here uh, yes. from uh, from you, the listeners to this show. And viewers, too, by the way, Steve, starting with this week, we're going to have video of the show available on iTunes and uh, on YouTube. So people who want to watch Steve gesticulate <laughs> can do so <laughs> every once in a while. You're not, I know you're not watching the video, but every once in a while, your, your hands get really big as you, as you gesticulate. Oh, like I go like in front of the camera? Exactly. And it's wonderful. <laughs> it's, just, it's just hysterical. Uh, so if you, if you have never seen Steve work, it, and people do tell me. I mean, you, you would say this is a classic example of a Talking Heads program where you, there's no visuals. But right. people say it really is easier to understand when they're watching you. Uh, there's just something, you know, it's like real communication. It's like talking yep. with somebody. And so yep. uh, if you haven't watched the video, give it a try. It is on uh, iTunes. Uh, you can subscribe in our Twitter uh, our Twit artist page and uh, also the um, Zune store. It's there, the Zune Marketplace, and, uh, and on YouTube as well. If you're not getting sufficient value from your five megabit download speed, this this will really we'll suck give up you a the new way to, exactly. Yeah, I think that they average about three or four hundred megabytes. It's Punish about, your ISP for giving you that deal. It's about as big as the Apple update. But that's exactly why people no longer care. It's just become transparent to people, mm -hmm. I think. Hey, let's talk a little bit about Audible.com. Actually, if you have a lot of bandwidth, Audible has a special uh, version of their books Super high quality, CD quality, they call it enhanced. Um, but you can also, they have five different types of every book. So if bandwidth is an issue, you can, you can depending on, you know, your tolerance for lower quality audio, you can get a much smaller file. I do the kind of the type four, which is half the size of enhanced. Uh, it's like 32 kilobit MP3, I think. Enhanced is 64 kilobit mono MP3, I believe. But the point is, these sound great. And they play back on almost every device with the one exception being Android devices, and that is coming soon. So what is Audible? It is a bookstore, 70,000 books, great titles, wonderful stuff. I know you're already listening to podcasts. This takes it to the next level at audible.com. Actually, if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now, you can, get, uh, you can get the first book free. You sign up for the gold account. First book's free. You cancel at any time, so no cost to you, and you get to keep the book forever. One of the things I like about Audible is that once you once you buy a book, it's in your library and you can download it at any time later. I'm um, just looking at Shackleton's Way. What a great story this is. Ernest Shackleton, uh, who tried to get to the Antarctic. Their ship got stuck 1,200 miles from civilization and they basically walked back. Rode a little bit, walked a little bit. It is a, an amazing story and... Uh, this is a new version of the story by um, uh, an expert on Shackleton, Margaret Morell, and Stephanie Caporell, who is a Wall Street Journal uh, leadership expert. And so this is a focus on this is kind of the leadership lessons of Ernest Shackleton, how he got his men under unbelievably difficult conditions to pull together and saved them all. Shackleton's Way... One of many great books. Now that's a business book, but if you, you know, if you listen to the show, you probably like sci-fi. I know a lot of you are science fiction fans, as Steve and I are. One of the things Audible's done is really expanded their science fiction section by recording great sci-fi that's never been recorded before. In many cases, classics, brand new ones. Try it. AudiblePodcast.com. Pick a book, any book from their seventy thousand book collection. 
almost all of them uh, are good for one credit. The 20th anniversary edition of Ender's Game. There's a classic. Um, AudiblePodcast.com slash security now. Get it for free when you sign up for the gold account. And we thank Audible so much for supporting security now. All right, Steve, I have, if you are ready, a dozen questions. We're going to power through these suckers. Yay. Are you ready? I am. Question one from John Hatfield, Indianapolis, Indiana. He says, no, it's not fixed. I just listened to number 241 last episode, and I was thrilled to hear you bringing up the mouse scroll wheel bug in Firefox, saying it was fixed at 3.6.2. Well, mm, it's been bothering me for several weeks since I upgraded to 3.6. Sadly, I have to report that the problem is not, in fact, fixed, at least for me. I I tried turning off Cat Mouse, which is that great program you recommended, and ta-da, the scroll wheel works. So it's a problem with Cat Mouse. He turns it back on, breaks it again. He says, not having the scroll wheel has caused me no end of frustration, but for the interim, until this bug is fixed, I'll be able to scroll by turning off Cat Mouse. I searched Google for it, uh, and until listening to uh, last week, I had no fix for this problem and was prepared to revert back to an older version of Firefox. So thanks, as always, for the great information. Spinrite 6 owner. I've used it 8 to 10 times to recover aging TiVo hard drives. Oh, that's a good use for Spinrite. I do it often, too. Yeah. Yep. Uh, also, I've been a listener since the second or third episode. Keep up the good work. Well, I just wanted to report this to our listeners since I had believed that 362 fixed it. And I have to say, Leo, um, when when you have the experience of that, that MX Anywhere Logitech mouse with the zero friction oh, s- scroll wheel. Oh, and I, 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 would, I would revert to Firefox 3.5 rather than give that up. I mean, it's a sort of a pain to turn cat mouse off and on like you'd have to turn off apparently in order to get scrolling because apparently 362 will do that for you although you'd probably have to you know the the the, the cool thing about cat mouse just to remind people is that it sends scroll messages to the window your cursor is over which is different than the window that is activated as microsoft calls you know the topmost window the one that's kind of lit up with the with the title bar um emphasized uh the idea being that it allows you just to scroll anything you know any window that the mouse is hovering over so it's just you know scrolling in web pages is certainly important when you've got when you've given the focus to firefox any version of firefox spinning the wheel will quickly scroll um the 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 web page but you know, it's nice to have cat mouse because it does that universally. But apparently something in the way Firefox is working is conflicting with cat mouse such that Firefox doesn't see cat mouse's scroll messages the way it normally sees the wheel um, scroll messages without cat mouse. So I did want to let people know that apparently, you know, though it's it works for me. And that's that's the other thing that's strange. I'm wondering... If there may be some difference in add-ons, which is causing a problem, if one of one of the add-ons maybe that John has is responsible for their be- for this problem, so I would say to him that you know it definitely is working for me on several different laptops. It's working for Greg, my tech support guy. Both of us briefly had this experience of it not working, and and now it is again. So it could be that there's an add-on conflict i mean i'm trying to think what's 
the difference between my version of Firefox 362 and, and John's, and certainly the collection of add-ons that we've chosen to run could be different between those two. So maybe that's it. Yeah. Anyway, I, if, I, if I didn't have it, if it didn't work like that, I'd be back at 3.5. I'd just kind of <laughs> camp there for a while and right. wait for 3.6 to get it fixed. So you have to think it's something that cat mouse is doing that maybe is non-standard as opposed to being a Firefox issue, but I don't know. Well, except it worked under three five, right? So <laughs> yeah. that's why this why it's why it's so difficult to debug software in a, in, a, in an environment where you have multitasking, multiple processes oh. going. And on. Leo, it's why GRC's news groups with the listeners, I mean, the, w- w- with the the audience that we have there. When I was doing the DNS benchmark, so handy. I was able to do a version and say, okay, gang. Kill it, you know, pound right. on it, jump on it. And, 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 and many of the guys, for example, were Linux users who were using Wine, which I wasn't living in. And they said, oh, well, that kind of, this went sideways there. And it's like, okay, I'll go fix that. So, I mean, it's just incredibly valuable. But you, it's no longer the case that if it works for you, it'll work for everyone. Right. Uh, as, as a developer, you really do need a, a, a large audience to, to give you the feedback. And that's why Microsoft does these big betas, right? Yes, Question two from Trevor Awalt, who wrote to GRC's tech support email about something he noticed. Trevor writes, I, uh, I'm using Wireshark on the, that's the old um, Ether, uh, what was it called? It's a, it's a packet sniffer. Yes. Um, uh, on the PC, Dell XPS 9000, da, 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 i7. While doing a DNS benchmark test in order to understand exactly what you were doing, he wanted to sniff your packets. Yep, he was. I was just wondering if you'd noticed that in all of your queries, the IP header checksum equals zero. Is that on purpose, even though this is the case, the DNS servers seem to respond okay? Well, this is, a, this is interesting. What, is that intentional? What happened? <laughs> I thought this would, would uh, maybe something that other of our listeners had seen, and it's a, it's a cool and interesting feature. Um, I'm just using... For the DNS benchmark, not doing any fancy raw packet stuff. I'm just using the regular UDP technology, the UDP stack in Windows and sending out packets. So in this case, although, for example, on the GRC server where I'm doing all kinds of fancy things, I'm building the packets myself and and sending them out through a raw interface so I am doing things like setting IP header checksums and, and all that. In this case, running on a, ra- a regular Windows client, I'm not doing that. So the stack is sending packets down to the, the NIC, the network interface card, um, with their IP headers left zero. Huh. The reason it's doing that is the NIC has said... We have hardware IP checksums. Uh, you don't need to do it. When you think about it, a checksum on a packet is a relatively expensive thing to do because it requires that you essentially scan the entire packet and sum up all of the 16-bit words which occur and apply the the standard IP checksumming algorithm. So to to do that takes time. So if a new feature of many of the latest NIC hardware is that that the 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 NIC chips will do that on the fly. That is it's impossible 
to send out a bad IP checksum. And there's no reason you would ever want to because, I mean, it would die at the first router that it came to. That, you know, anything that, that checked that for integrity, right. that's what it would look for in order to see that if there was a, a transmission error. So it's, there's no even tricky hacky fun way to like to like any there's no there's no win in deliberately messing up the checksums in in tcp ip packets so so you can't send out a wrong one well what's interesting is that wireshark where wireshark sticks its little shim to sniff is right in between the stack and the network interface card so it's seeing the packets go by with no checksum set. Essentially, the device driver has, has given Windows permission not to bother. Just do not bother with that. We'll take care of it. So what's cool is that the hardware with zero overhead does that for the software as the packet is leaving it on its way out the wire. Mm, so that's the answer. Yeah. Wireshark's kind of fun. Because see, you see what's you could you actually are looking at the traffic as it's going out, so you see all sorts yes. of interesting stuff there. And we have a not so fun one about that coming Ooh, up here. All right. Yeah, uh, Curtis Clark in Sayreville, New Jersey, with question number four. He wonders about IP network addressing. He says, Stephen Leo, I have a question regarding the difference in IP addresses for my home networking devices. Recently, I purchased a new wireless router for my home. The old router uses that, you know, 192.168.1.whatever IP address distribution. The new one uses 10.0.0. I use a NAS as a local backup. And before you ask, Leo, I use Carbonite for off-site backup. Good combination, actually. And I manually give the NAS a fixed IP address of 192.168.1.20 so I could always get to its web portal using the same destination IP address. Of course, when I switched from the old router using the 192 scheme to the new router using the 10 dot scheme, I noticed I could no longer access the NAT at its IP address. So I switched back to the old 192 dot router and changes the NAS's fixed IP address to 10 dot 0.0.20. Then switched back to the new router. Everything worked, but that made me think: Why couldn't I still access the NAS at its original fixed IP of 192.168.1.20? Since I was, you know, it was right there sitting on my network. And since I couldn't access it, couldn't this somehow be used for some kind of, um, I don't know, access security? Steve? That's a great question. So, so he basically changed his network from, because his, his, as he evolved his router, he went to a new router. He changed it from a 192.168 network to a 10 dot network. Um, and he's, so he's asking, but the NAS was still set with that fixed address. Originally, 192.168.1.20, it's like there. So why can't he still get to it? Because it's right there on his network. Right. Um, the answer is kind of cool. And it, exp- it, it explains um, how this aspect of networking and, and masking and submasking works. The idea is that the the... When you have a network, a local area network, whether it's 192.168.1. something or 10. whatever, essentially the you there is the network address, which is those numbers, and then there's a subnet mask. That what the subnet mask does is it specifies which IP addresses are on that local network 
and any that are not are assumed to be somewhere else. They're not, they're not on the local network. They're, they're elsewhere. And so what happens is when, remember that we're always talking about Ethernet networks here. So the actual way packets are addressed is with MAC addresses, which are the actual physical addresses of the interface cards on the Ethernet. The IP addresses are just sort of a, they're a convenient way for us mapping these IP addresses to the MAC addresses. But it's actually the MAC addresses that are, it, it is the actual way packets are sent from point to point. So what happens is when he was at his computer, which was now in a 10 dot network where anything beginning with 10 was on the, was, was regarded as on the local area network. And he tried to connect to 192.168.1.20. The, the routing system in his local computer's network said, does this address begin with 10? If it begins with 10, it's on the LAN. If it doesn't, it's not. And when it saw that it didn't begin with 10, and, and, and literally it, the, the, the part of the subnet mask which has ones in it, did not match the numbers of his network. That was the logic used. And so it said, okay, this is not on the LAN. Send it to the gateway. And so even though, even though the IP address was physically a device on his network, he'd sort of moved his network out from under it. And so by definition, if it's not local, it's remote. And if it's remote, you send the packet to the gateway, and now it's the gateway's problem. You know, it's sort of like you're, you, you've, you've discharged your responsibility. It's now the gateway's problem to send it on to wherever it goes. So, you know, that's the end of the mystery. And as for could this be used as access security, well, not really, because that device is there on the network. It is at that IP address. And if you made a change to, for example, to your routing table in the computer where you said this particular IP is local, then that would override this decision and you could still access it even uh-huh. at a funky IP. So it's there. It's ready to receive traffic. Um, but it's just it, at, at the moment, it's sort of been softly excommunicated but not really hard excommunicated it you you could get to it if you wanted to all right now it's time for some comedy relief an anonymous listener subject line sunbathing au naturel <laughs> steve i finally got back to listening to your vitamin d episode by the way um you know some flu has been going around steve and i and i doubled down on my vitamin d um I was worried initially about uh, overdosing. This is not the letter. This is me talking. And uh, and I just read that, you know, you, just sunbathing for 15 minutes is like, t- whatever, is 10,000 units or something. Yeah, I know. Yep. So the I'm taking uh, like 2,500 units, which is probably not, I don't even know if it's therapeutic, but, it, but it, I haven't gotten sick. Uh, well, I, I've, I've avoided, I, I'm getting I know, you're not making a prescription. You're not a doctor. No, no. I, I'm going to say I've, I, I've avoided... Um, talking about this all the time but there is 
it is really becoming an issue in the news. There, there's, there was an article last week that talked about where they've actually discovered at the molecular level how T cells, which are our immune system cells, put out a little VDR that I talked about in the podcast, a vitamin D receptor, and if and require vitamin D in order for the T cells immune function to activate. And without it, it doesn't. And so they're beginning to understand increasingly how important vitamin D is to things like immune system function. Interesting. And there's been like studies that have showed that um, there was a study with school kids where um, their incidence of catching the flu, this was between 08 and 09, was, was nearly cut in half by vitamin D versus a placebo. So it was a, it was a, a double blind, uh, a double blind placebo controlled study that said, you know, that I mean that really demonstrated that kids didn't have enough vitamin D. And when they were given some, they got that like the incidence of them coming down with the flu was cut nearly in half. Wow. And interestingly, asthma nearly one, nearly by one sixth that is one sixth the instant instances holy of cow. asthma versus not holy so, cow yeah i know it's i well, just you know purely anecdotally i i just haven't been sick since i you know started taking uh more divorce vitamin d it's been yeah. great. this is a security podcast i want to keep us on that but <laughs> well and this care. has nothing to do with that except that he was you know listening to the fact that you were sunbathing in the nude ah okay as, as a as a test to see whether you could get enough vitamin d uh the, the natural way Right. He says, I had a friend who used to uh, uh, slew the, maybe flew, slew the NSA satellites around in some secret basement facility. And I asked him if it was really possible to read your license plate from outer space with them. He laughed out loud and told me, number eight font. He said, you could look over someone's shoulder and tell what he was reading in a newspaper. They could read down to a, a font uh, size of eight points. He said, this was 15 years ago. Wow. So being aware of the surveillance laws, I asked, do you guys turn this off when the satellites pass over the U.S.? He said, no. In fact, he said, they knew the location of most of the nudist camps in the country. Sunbathing au naturel has never been the same since. <laughs> Just a word of warning. Yeah, Big Brother may be watching, but he probably doesn't want to see what he does. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, the nudist camps that I've, you know been aware of anecdotally never been to one but i've you know they, they don't look like places where one gets very no, excited about going no, there no 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 here's question five peter uh yeah barson in uh, sweden says uh he wants to talk about disposal mail steve and leo thanks for security down the information you give us it helps to be safer on the internet love the show and for Leo's sake, if you decide to share this, yada, yada, yada. Which <laughs> <laughs> is kind of what I always say, et cetera. You know, Brush Limbaugh, that's why he created the ditto heads. You know, it's just like, uh, just say ditto, okay? Because <laughs> mega ditto. Because people just kept saying the same thing over and over. So just say ditto from now on. Anyway, I was thinking about how annoying it is to have to supply an email when you just want to get past a point for getting to the next next step in the process, you know, whatever it is you want to do on the net, I discovered disposamail.com. Dispose A M A I L dot com. As you know, as I know, you don't like to click on links and emails, just Google it. Huh. <laughs> See? Yeah, I won't click. Yep. I won't click. 
Don't ask me. Uh, he says, uh, I think it's a really nice solution for just getting past these steps. Furthermore, if you want to get a unique disposable email address, you could just use the GRC password generator, which is awesome. The only thing I'm missing for the disposal mail solution is uh, HTTPS. thought it might be fun for you to know that I follow the TNOESG rule. That is, trust no one except Steve Gibson. Keep the invaluable work up that you and Leo do regards Peter in Sweden. Now, that's a neat thing. Dispose a mail. Okay, now, this is really sort of odd, um, but interesting. So, yes, dispose a mail, D-I-S-P-O-S-E-A-M-A-I-L.com. Now, what it is, is, okay, I, I'm intrigued by it, but it's, I'm a little frightened by it, too. It is just a galactic email recipient that you don't even have to tell it ahead of time. You don't create an account. You don't log on. You don't identify yourself. Nothing. All you do is if you are at some random, you know, download site or account creation nonsense, I hate that. I mean, when I built GRC's e-commerce system, I said, I am not going to ask People who want to buy Spinrite, to, first you must create an account with GRC. It's like, I, you know, the things I that drive me nuts, I'm not going to ask my, my own customers to do. That's just bogus. But, you know, I'm sure we're always, I mean, I know I'm always having to give an email address for something where I never, I'm never going to go back there. I, I'm afraid that they're going to send me an email loop confirmation because they're trying to, you know, harvest email addresses from people, even though I don't want them to do that. So it's like, okay, okay. So wherever you happen to be at one of these sites, you just make something up. I mean, on the spur of the moment, you, it could just be test. It could be hi mom, anything at disposamail.com. So that site sends email confirmation, follow-up, you know, click-through loop, whatever it is, it sends it to disposamail.com. Disposamail.com accepts anything from anywhere. It doesn't care. Right. And I think, my God, how do they handle spam? Because, you know, I've looked at, I've done packet sniffing of my own GRC's SMTP servers, you know, which transact email, and I see servers hook up to grc and try you know adam at grc.com alex at grc.com annette at grc.com and right i mean right down through every possible first name there is and in fact um i created a a temporary uh, email address that i realized after in order to purchase the ipad doing you know exactly this same thing what we're talking about and i got spam on it because it wasn't bizarre enough so you know this this quacky disposal mail it must just be accepting all the spam that's ever been sent to it, or they must maybe they do some good you know RBL stuff you know blacklisting SMTP sources so they're not getting too much. So the point is, if you put if you go to so you go to disposal mail and put in like test, uh, all you get is a simple little form. It says, "What email address would you like to check on stuff from?" And so you put in hi mom or whatever. And if they've ever received any email addressed to hi mom 
at disposalmail.com, including everyone else's. Yeah, so it'd probably be a good idea not to use something obvious. Correct. So, and I did. I, I mean, well, I just use spam and look at all the. Uh, 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 try test. <laughs> test. I test think has like a nice little set of maybe about twelve yeah. things. Yeah. And so, and so, so it doesn't even check to see if it's you or anything. You're just looking for what did you get with that email address lately? Yes. And so, so certainly you would want to use. There's a lot of spam here, by the way. In fact, it's okay, almost all su- spam. I'm not surprised. Yeah. It, I mean, it would have to be. It's take. It's collecting it from anything. Right. But if you were to put in, you know. 729 underscore 37 Ajax 9 Charlie Baker, you know, there's probably not going to be many of those. You can make it up on the fly, and then you just go over and put the same thing into it, and it'll give you your mail that was sent. So with, with an understanding that it's strange, that it's not private at all, that anybody anybody who puts in the same email address that you put in will see whatever that you were sent. And that's the problem is you wouldn't, you know, if, if, if you were doing something where, you know, a bank was sending you confirming credentials or something or click this link to, you know, access your account and you used, you know, you know, doggy breath or something. um, Anybody else who put that in would, would see the mail that was sent. And I don't know if there's a way to delete it. I didn't notice to see. I, don't, I guess probably not. Otherwise, people would be deleting each other's email. So well, that's, why, that's why I guess he's suggesting you use perfect paper passwords. Yes, use a bizarre, absolutely unique or the, string. The string generator, right. Yeah. Right. And I would also say don't do it for something sensitive. Do it for, you know, things that are just annoying but don't really, you know, you wouldn't mind it if somebody else saw it because – Potentially someone else could. There's no security here. But for what it is, it's wacky, but I could. it's kind of useful. I would bet that spammers have, uh, or somebody says, or hackers have written uh, scripts that scan through this stuff and are looking for bank passwords and things. So, in fact, I would say this is a very dangerous thing to do for something that you'd want to keep secure. Yes. Um, Although, again, we don't know. I don't know how long an, an email address it could accept. But if you use one of GRC's, you know, perfect passwords, I mean, there you've got gazillion, you've got gazillion bits worth of randomness. I mean, right. that's what I'm that that's what I'm offering at GRC for that reason. So, you know, but again, without your ability to delete it, it's going to be there forever. So yeah. you don't want, and you're sending it to somebody else, not to you. So, you know, it is a concern, but I could see myself. For clearly non-sensitive things, saying, "Ah, this is easy." I mean, right. this is this is better than having to create random temporary password or you know email ad- accounts. Chat room tells me there are a number of other services. This is another one that does exactly the same thing. Mailinator, M A I L I N A T O R. Cool. And there's quite a few of them. So okay. uh, if you think about it, it'd be an easy script to write, really. Yes, it's uh, a it's a no-brainer. It's but a no-brainer. I'm not writing one. <laughs> no, uh, just you don't like want the responsibility. I'm not having it on GRC. No. By the way, the uh, chat rooms also sent me an article from CNN a couple of days back. Uh, uh, Bob Green, a CNN contributor, writing a story in CNN about getting exactly the same email that my wife Jennifer got this morning uh, from a from a friend of his who was a famous sports writer, and uh, it's the same. So apparently, this is really going around right now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So tell tell Jen that you know, if nothing else, she's in good company. Panic not. Yeah. 
Well, she didn't get hacked. It was somebody else, but she's in good exactly. company. Like, falling for it, probably. Yes. Uh, question six, Mark Fink in Baltimore, Maryland. Just listening to Security Now 240, a couple of episodes back, and uh, the question about disabling the microphone. We were talking about uh, how easy it is to disable a camera by taping it over, but the mic still works, and in fact, it doesn't look like you can necessarily disable it very easily. He says, sorry if I'm the millionth person to suggest this. On my Dell M4300 laptop, you could disable it in the BIOS settings. Don't know how common an option this is, but I thought I'd mention it as one place people could look. Thanks for helping to make the world a little safer and more aware. My wife and I uh, and the IT folks at work wish I have never found your podcast. My wife and the IT folks at work wish I'd never found your podcast. Mark Fink, Baltimore, Maryland. So if a, it, Now, if I disable it in BIOS, does that mean software could turn it back on? No. Well... Okay, maybe ultra-specialized software could turn it back on because it is the BIOS. You're, you're using the keyboard and the BIOS and when you're in the setup mode to change the BIOS. But this is a very good idea. So if you're a person with a laptop who doesn't use your microphone, that is the regular microphone on your laptop, you're not doing teleconferencing and Skype and so forth, and, and, and you're... Or, when you do, you're not using the built-in microphone, but you're using a headset, for example. Um, the, the reason I like this is that in the BIOS, when you turn it off, it disappears to the OS. It, the OS believes that it's on a laptop with no microphone, that is with no built-in uh -huh. microphone. It doesn't see it in any way. The hardware, it's removed from the hardware list, and it's just gone. Well, that's good. So, so I, it's that's a that's a great suggestion. I hadn't thought of it. I wanted to give Mark credit for that and, and thank him because um, it. Now it's not. It, we don't know that all BIOSes are going to have this, but um, you know, BIOSes often give you the option of turning like your serial ports on and off. How many of those do you want? Do you want this enabled or not? If you have an option for microphone disabling and. You're not a user. By all means, turn it off in the BIOS. It'll just disappear from your operating system, and the OS won't know you, you that you, it, it you know that it exists at all. Question great, seven. Great idea. Yeah. yeah. Patrick right. Boyle, Springfield, Missouri, has more forensic suggestions for us. Steve, I just heard last week's episode. Someone was wondering how to block an IP address. You mentioned your your buddy Mark Thompson's FixedOrbit.com. Thank you for the tool, and boy, do I have some more related tools for you. IP Neighbors. It's uh, www.myipneighbors.com. You can enter an IP address or a domain name. It'll show you all the domains that are hosted at that IP address. Well, that's interesting. Uh, here's one for domaintools.com. Used to be whoes.sc. Domaintools.com. You enter an IP address or a domain name. It shows you the ownership. And whoes.net. Same thing by IP address. Tools.whoes.net. So there's some other useful ways of figuring out what's going on in that network. Yeah, and I thought that our listeners are the kind of people who would appreciate knowing about those other little tools since we're all reference. sleuths. I put, uh, there's a command line um, Java program called jwhois that I always put on all my Macs. It's, you do it from the terminal, from the command line, but it's really good at scanning. The problem is finding out from IP address or domain name who owns it is you have to go through a lot of different registrars. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this does this has a very complete list of registrars, but there are websites uh, like the some ones he mentioned that do a very good job too. Right. Uh, question uh, number eight: David W. Griffin in Atlanta, Georgia, comments about programming in assembly language. 
I respect your abilities to program an assembly language, Stephen, but much of the world's software these days is designed for large-scale software for which high-level solutions rather than low-level solutions are the right way to go. Developing large software projects with large staffs and then maintaining them for a decade, it is not a job for which you would select assembly language. Not if you could help it anyway. I'm not sure I agree with that, but software engineering has made little progress toward reusable components, but at least high-level languages have some effect on achieving reliability. Nothing you have said contradicts this. You, after all, are doing small, well-focused applications with a single author. But I thought I'd make the point that much of the world's software today has other design considerations. Enjoy the podcast and your lectures on computer science. And largely, I completely agree. I'm, you know, when I talk about my use of assembly language, I regard it as a personal preference. I'm not pushing it on people. I'm not suggesting that the world would be a better place if people programmed in assembly language. Well, maybe I am. But, um, I, but I completely re- <laughs> recognize that, um, that high-level languages are here to stay, that they make much more sense for, for many applications. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's, pro, it's programmer productivity. I guess the metric that I've seen, which is most compelling, is that no matter what level of language you're programming in, programmers generally produce the same number of lines per day. So... If a high-level language line of code does much more than an assembly language line of code, and both are going both programmers are going to be equally productive when measured in lines of code, then it's clear that more functionality is being written per day by someone whose lines of code do more per line. Because they're using a high-level language. So I have no problem with that. I'm sticking with what I love and like and know and I'm so comfortable with assembly language. But I have been, by no means have I been intending to denigrate in any way the, the value of high-level languages. Um, you know, it's, um, we wouldn't have nearly as much stuff if we didn't have high-level languages. I would argue maybe we'd have better stuff, but much less of it. So... Would that be a bad thing? Uh, I'm not so sure that'd be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, I guess my my thinking is you can make assembly be, look just like a high-level language with macros and probably make it very efficient. Well, mine is very clean, and I write a lot of it in a day. So, again, it, it might be a little bit like, you know, the, the, the guy who uh, wrote in about fourth who took exception to my saying – I can't read that. How can right. anybody read that? Nobody right. can read that. And he said, I can read that. Right. It's like, okay, so it's what you know. It really is. Yep. To each his own. It's like arguing which, which human language is the best. I mean, yeah, they, they're all, they can all be equally expressive. But I think, you're, I think I like the metric, which is the more you can, t- you know, assembly language does require more typing. To get the same job done, you're absolutely <laughs> Do more doing more typing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Giovanni Darkea in Maryland wonders about the RFID YubiKey. This is the new one. Uh, Steve, I just want to let you know Yubico is now making their famous YubiKey with an integrated RFID transmitter. I was wondering what you think the potential security implications could be now that anyone could just wirelessly get your YubiKey passwords. Or if you do think it's safe enough to use, what scenarios do you envision yourself using the RFID YubiKey with? As always, love the show. Please keep recording it for many years to come. Looking forward to Crypto link. Come on, Steve. Start coding. <laughs> um, 
I'm glad he reminded me. Um, you know, I did meet with Stina Evansfard about uh, a, a couple weeks ago. We had some coffee in the morning when she was down here after the uh, annual RSA conference up in um, San Francisco. And uh, to clarify, um, this new YubiKey is exactly like the previous YubiKeys, the next, the, the, the new generation ones, the ones that have two different modes of operating. Um, just to remind our listeners, that's allows you to have both the original pre-programmed with a secret key that nobody knows, but which will authenticate against Yubico's authentication servers. And you can also have like, a, it's like a second channel. You can also touch it differently and it will generate a whole second channel huh. where you can put a fixed password of your own. You can put a uh, also make it a one-time password. They now support the standard oath-style authentication, which is the same thing which the um, VeriSign tokens and, and other things use. It's less re uh, resolution in terms of the digits it's producing, but it's an industry standard, so they've gone that way. So that's the non-RFID version of their current sort of second second generation YubiKey. What they what they did was they they have another version for a little more money. I think it's thirty five dollars, which has all that and a static serial number RFID transponder. The idea was that well, rather than you know in, in this quest to minimize the so called necklace of having to have all these separate authentication things, they said, well, look, we'll just put in an RFID transponder. So if something pings us, we'll respond with a, an RFID standard token, which is fixed. It's not variable. It's always the same. It simply identifies that particular YubiKey out of the world of them and out of the world of other RFID things. There's a registrar that you use very much like you do with MAC addresses so you don't have to worry about them, them having collisions. And so the concept was, you know, if your corporation used RFID like door keys, you could register your YubiKeys RFID ID <laughs> um, with your company's door security, in which case you wouldn't have to have a separate RFID dongle to get into the building. You just use your YubiKey, waving it rather than using it in the normal USB mode, which we all know the YubiKey uses. So it's just a cool little additional feature, not much money. And uh, they thought, well, why not toss it in? I mean, in no way it doesn't interact with the YubiKey functionality. It's just a separate, it's like a third channel that says, this is my ID. Now, if you don't want that, don't use that YubiKey. If you do, if that would be useful to you, they've got that too. Go way to go, Stina. They're amazing. Yeah. What a They're great They're doing company. a great job. Yeah. All right. Now we get into some uh, special uh, questions. Our final three great things. <laughs> three great things. Starting with the great warning of the week. Subject, yes, it matters from Brian in Raleigh, North Carolina. Steve, in case anyone dismisses your continual warnings of ARP poisoning and man-in-the-middle attacks in public spaces as improbable, 
I'd like to pass along a report from a friend who says he witnessed someone using the EtherCap networking uh, sniffing tool in a local coffee shop this morning. It does happen. It's well worth protecting yourself from it. Thanks for a very informative podcast. Yeah, it's actually EtherCap. Oh, EtherCap. E-T-T-E-R-C-A-P. Okay. Uh, It's hosted over on SourceForge, and the people are proud of what they've created. It's ettercap.sourceforge.net. They're announcing that um, 0.7.3 is now released, and their short description of ettercap, which was being used in this coffee shop this morning, it reads, ettercap is a sweet for man-in-the-middle attacks on LAN. Hmm. It features sniffing of live connections, content filtering on the fly, and many other interesting tricks. <laughs> it supports active and passive dissection of many protocols, even ciphered ones, and includes many features for network and host analysis. So one of the many things it does, for example, is catch usernames and passwords in in email logons and and unsecured web logons like automatically for you and i would be i don't know that the person wasn't doing anything more advanced than that but even that remember that you know for the longest time gmail logons were not secure unless you unless you deliberately used https initially in order to connect up to to google um and uh, and then you dropped back out of security. And most, I would say today, most standard SMTP and POP logons where you log on to your server to get your mail are still being sent over port 110 for POP and it's not secure. So somebody sitting in a coffee shop running Ettercap may very well be harvesting um, logon, you know, email logon credentials. I mean, for example, this is exactly how you start the exploit that got Jennifer, Leo. You, you ah. get, you, this is, I mean, this is how you do it. Right. This guy collects these logon credentials. Maybe he's selling them or maybe he's using them himself. So that allows you to log onto somebody else's pop account and browse through their email, learn about them and then send you know, email asking for for money from the people they know. I mean, this is how it starts, and this was happening in a coffee shop this morning. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, it, ha- it happens all the time. Uh, Randall Schwartz used to do that on the uh, cruise ships. He would say, "Is this your password?" He'd come up to people because <laughs> people were on the Wi-Fi, uh, un- you know, un- unencrypted, and uh, uh, he said, "You just sent your password in the clear." And I think, in a way, that's just the worst. Making thing. friends wherever he goes, <laughs> Randall. <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, Moving right along to now number 11, which is our great recommendation of the week from Steve Heiner, between a keyboard and a chair in Phoenix, Arizona. Subject, loving the current podcast series. Steve, I'm really enjoying your current Build a Computer series. Thanks for putting it together. The series has been the motivation I need to read a book I've owned for two or three years. Charles Petzold's book, Code. This is a classic, by the way. The, the Hidden Language of Computer Hardware and Software. There are huge parallels with your podcast series, of course, but it really helps to fill in some of the gaps since he has the room to expand on topics and use graphics to help explain things. I'm over 200 pages into the book, and it's he's finally gotten to the point of being able to talk about opcodes and machine language. 200 pages in. 
He takes it very slow and explains every little thing in detail. Anyone who is enjoying the Let's Build a Computer series and wants to go a bit deeper should consider picking up this book. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it, too. First of all, Charles Petzold is a tremendous technical writer. He is the guy who taught me Windows. Oh, you're kidding. It's it's Charles Petzold's classic book, Programming Windows, right. which was my Bible when I'm, you know, I'm coming from DOS where I owned the whole machine and I all you had was a BIOS and you could put characters on the screen and read, read the keyboard. And that was, you know, for example, the environment in which I wrote Spinrite. And that's the environment in which everyone programmed. You know, the original Lotus 123 was a DOS program that ran on the text screen. And so when when I sort of thought, oh, it looks like this darn Windows thing is going to happen after all. <laughs> I kept waiting for it to die. But, you know, <laughs> no, it just didn't die. And I thought, you know, and then for a while I would only fire up Windows in order to run Designer, uh, Micrographics Designer, which was like a fantastic graphics drawing tool but everything else was better still in dos and then you know then word kind of happened and and i thought oh yeah i guess i'm gonna have to learn this newfangled thing and so it was charles petzold who came to the rescue and i mean i remember scratching my head wow what's going on here with the windows i don't really get it but he explained it to me so yes code the hidden language of computer hardware and software uh, I really like Steve's recommendation. Um, it's a great one. For anyone who's enjoying this series, uh, Charles, as Steve says, takes it very slow, and you'll really understand this stuff. He wrote course, for PC Magazine? I know I know that. Yep, yeah. yep. Oh, yeah, he wrote for yeah. PC Magazine for decades. Right. I mean, forever. Yeah. He's, he's, great guy. He's top-notch. Yep. Question uh, 12. Can we be, are we at the end? We are. Holy cow. Huh. Went fast today. Uh, Jack Daniel with a Starro in Wilmington, Massachusetts, brings us the brilliant idea of the week. Steve, I heard the question about blocking attacks by IP, and I had a few thoughts. First, given where I'm sitting, if you're running a Starro, you can easily black hole routes, uh, route by IPs or networks. It's also easy to add a route to your computer to misdirect traffic for Windows, something like route add with the bad IP address, mask it with 255 times 4 uh, to a non-existent local IP address, dash P will do the trick. Works for I'll put that in the show notes because it's a command line. Works for networks too. Don't forget the dash P. It makes the route change persistent. Then a route print command will show the current routing table to confirm the changes. If you know how to speak router, you know you can do anything, can't you, Steve? Well, I completely forgot about the routing table that all of us have in Windows. And so I loved Jack's suggestion. It's brilliant. Um, you know, mem- this is uh, better the, than hosts then. For, for the, well, the hosts won't do it because hosts will only – our computer goes to the hosts file when it wants to, when it wants to do a DNS lookup and, it, and, and we want to prevent it from doing a DNS lookup. Right. So, we, for example, you would tell hosts – to go to, I mean, you you would put an entry in the host file for, say, that you wanted to just block all access to doubleclick.net. You'd put doubleclick.net tab and then 127.0.0.1, which is your by default the IP of your own machine. And so your computer cannot get the actual IP address of doubleclick.net because it always asks the host file 
that's to say it looks in the host's file first to satisfy any request. And only if it's not there does it go on. But it doesn't look for IP addresses. And so one of our um, questioners, I guess it was um, week before last, he was asking, I've got some bad IP addresses. I've, I know they're bad. I've stumbled on them before. They've bitten me before, whatever. I just want to prevent my computer from ever going there. How can I do that? And so I scratched my head and uh, um, noted that, well, some software firewalls will allow you to block by IP address. Jack comments, first of all, that the Astaro security gateway will offer that facility. And the advantage, of course, of, of doing it at the gateway is then you're blocking that evil, presumably evil or malicious IP for all machines within your network. So it, you know, it keeps any traffic from, from addressed to that IP from heading out past it. It just, you know, black hole is the, is the networking term for, for, for doing that. Um, but in our computers is a routing table. And I referred to it indirectly earlier when I was talking about it was that that question about the guy's NAS that was on 192.168 um, and he switched to a 10 dot network and so forth. If you were to open a command window in Windows or in the Mac for that for that matter, I mean, this is something that has existed from the beginning of the Internet in the first Unix machines that were on the Internet and and all OSs, Linux, Unix, Solaris, Windows, you name it. There, if they're using IP technology, there's a routing table in in your local machine, and that's what it, that's where that decision is made to that that a that a packet is addressed to a to another machine on the local network or not on the local network, meaning route that out to the gateway. So that line that, that um, Jack provided there is, is route space add, then an IP that you want to match, then the word mask, and then in this case, it would be 255.255.255.255, meaning cop mask every bit. Every bit of the, of the IP you're giving it is important. If you wanted to block a whole network, that is the IPs in in the in the in a in a in the range of that bad IP, you might go two five five dot two five five dot two five five dot zero, which would mean that the last byte would sort of be a wild card byte. It'd be like a like you know dot star on the end, meaning any of those IPs. Then you give it a non-existent local IP, which you know could be. 127.001 or 192.168.100.100, whatever. And so essentially what that does is that tells the, that tells your computer, this is, this is sort of underneath a firewall, um, without needing a firewall of any kind that tells your computer as this packet is getting ready to be sent, it says check to see whether it matches you know what it matches in the routing table. The way the table works, the first match that occurs is the one that takes precedence. So the the the, the routing table is is ordered so that the the most specific matches are earliest, and then the more general ones occur later. 
so that so that you always get a the, the more specific match um, uh, occurring before general ones, and that ends up just sort of working out in terms of routing table dynamics. And the idea would be that it's a it's a simple way of efficiently and cleanly blocking specific IPs that are blocking your computer from sending them out to the gateway. Normally, they would end up matching the last rule in the routing table, which is sort of, if nothing else happened, send it to the gateway. But in this case, it would match that rule, and it would send it to a non-existent IP, making it just disappear. So it would be impossible for your computer to contact that remote IP you're wanting to prevent. And then what's cool is, from the command line, again, you can say route space print. And, I mean, you can do it right now. Anyone listening could just open up a, a DOS box and say route space print, and it'll dump out your current routing table, showing you what the default routing table is. And he makes a point of that because if you do the dash P, it will end up making an, an entry in the registry, which will reinstantiate that route every time your machine boots, which is what you would want if you wanted to keep these things blacklisted, essentially. Um, but you'd have to remember you know, you had done that because it's a very powerful mechanism. And I mean, I could imagine scratching my head for days if I, if I, someone said to my, you know, brought me to a computer and said, Steve, everything works except I can't go to Google. Nothing I do lets me go to Google. And we'd look in the host's file and there'd be nothing there. And we'd look and he wouldn't have a firewall. Everything would be fine. And I would just, I mean, maybe I'd think to sniff traffic and go, oh, look what's happening. The packet's going to the twilight zone, and that might lead me back to the routing table. But, I mean, it's a kind of a cool, very stealthy way to make some changes deep in Windows that most people don't even know about or, or don't even think about. Yeah. And it's all built in. It just, it's just, it's in there. It's in there. Wow, these are great questions and some great tips. I had to stop myself at 12, Leo. I just, you know, I thought, <laughs> oh, come on. Well, we whiz through them, so that's fine. Yeah. You can find more about Steve and uh, all of his great software at grc.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where you'll find Spinrite, everybody's favorite hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, but also lots of freebies like Wizmo and Shields Up, which is very famous for testing routers. Um, you can also find 16 kilobit versions of the show there, as well as the full quality versions, transcriptions, and show notes. It's all at grc.com. If you'd like to ask a question for our next Q&A segment in a couple of episodes, you can go to grc.com slash feedback. And Steve, we will uh, see you next week. With, do you know what you're going to talk about yet, or is it going to be a surprise? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked. We were going to be talking about, we've been planned to talk about, the multiverse, multi-threading, multitasking, multi-core, multi-everything. But we can't. Why not? Something has come up. Oh, my. <laughs> and it's always the case that, you know, we will give pre precedence to things that are important that have come up. It has, and many of our listeners were writing to me about this well after I had learned about it. And so rest assured, I know all about it. Um, I'm not going to do an I told you so, but it turns out mm -hmm. there's a problem with so many certificate authorities being trusted by our browsers. Oh, boy. There is evidence that some governments have been legally compelling trusted certificate authorities 
to issue bogus website certificates specifically to allow them to spy. Oh, dear. So we need to talk about how this is happening, the mechanisms, what it, you know, how we can detect it, and, and what to do about it. But as I'm, if there's an 18-page academic paper that we'll link to next week, and as I'm reading through it, I mean, I, I could have written part of it because at, uh, at one point it says, uh, it, it, it's like bemoaning the huge number of, of authorities which are now trusted certificate authorities in our browsers. And remember, I used to joke about yeah. the Hong Kong, Hong post, Kong office, post Office, yeah. not meaning to pick on them, but... You know, it's like, why are, does my browser trust anything they do? And, and what's significant is that, you know, Google may have their certificate signed by VeriSign, but that doesn't prevent any other certificate authority from generating a bogus Google.com certificate for someone else. Uh. And that allows the interception of our SSL secured traffic. It, there is evidence that this is happening. So we're going to talk about that next week. Terrible. Yep. Okay, well, Steve. That's, Aren't you glad you asked? Yeah. Wow. Well, no, this will be an uh, important episode. you got to make sure yep. you listen next it's week. Classic Security Now topic. Don't miss, don't miss a one. And what's so cool is all of our listeners who have been following along understand what I just said. <laughs> They're ready. They're, They're prepared, and the rest of you, you got some. Uh, you got some listening to do. Just go back and listen to the previous two hundred and fifty-one episodes. Should be easy. Two hundred forty-one okay. episodes should be easy. Steve, we'll see you uh, next week on uh, Security Now. A reminder, of course, you can get us in video now. Go to iTunes, search for Security Now, or just search for Twit, and you'll find all the Twit shows, including Security Now. There, uh, we have high and low quality H.264, not low, uh, uh, but actually large and small is probably a better way to describe it. Uh, suitable for, de- depending on your device, your computer, your laptop, or your big screen TV, or maybe your phone. Uh, we also have uh, YouTube versions at uh, youtube.com slash twit. Look in the Security Now channel. That's going to be that way from now on. Once a week, we're adding more shows to the video lineup so you can get the video versions. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.